We'll hear argument next in number 91, 1833, uh, Michael Lincoln versus Grover Vigil or Vigil. Uh, spectators are reminded not to talk while you're in the courtroom. Mr. Needler, you may proceed. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Respondents brought this suit to challenge a 1985 decision by the Indian Health Service to redirect the work of a group of its employees from a regional to a national effort to promote the availability of diagnostic and related services for handicapped Indian children. The employee's work was funded by a lump sum appropriation from Congress for the Indian Health Service and its 12,000 employees, 50 hospitals, 150 health centers, and 300 health clinics. Funds were authorized by the Snyder Act, the comprehensive statute that authorizes Indian appropriations generally, and by the Indian Health Services Improvement Act, which from time to time has provided supplemental funds to address specific areas of Congress's concern. This case presents two questions. First, whether judicial review under the Administrative Procedure Act of of an agency's allocation of funds from one conceitedly authorized purpose to another is barred because it is committed to agency discretion by law. And second, whether formal rulemaking procedures consisting of uh, published notice in the Federal Register and opportunity for comment, is required before the Indian Health Service could redirect its resources in the manner that respondents challenge. We submit that the answer to both questions is no, uh, or that the Court of Appeals erred on both questions. Uh, On the first, the Court of Appeals acknowledged that the Snyder Act and the Indian Health Service Act do not provide manageable standards for a court to apply in reviewing the Indian Health Service's action here. Nor does the lump sum appropriation statute furnish any such law. It's simply, as is typical of such statutes, a lump sum for all of the authorized activities of the statutes uh, of the agency under the statutes that authorize its basic functions. The Court of Appeals instead concluded that certain statements in the legislative history of the lump sum appropriation statute furnished a basis for judicial review. Uh, in our view, that is clearly wrong. Statements in legislative history are simply not law for a court to apply within the meaning of this court's APA jurisprudence. Only statutory text enacted by Congress is law for a court to apply. Well, you, you have a text here, which is, uh, you know, a certain amount of money, and uh, you, do, it doesn't, you don't know what that money is supposed to be used for, and uh, this legislative history clarifies what it's to be used for. Why is that any different from a piece of legislative history that clarifies uh, the meaning of a prohibition? It's totally ambiguous. You'd think the agency can take a number of different views of what it means if you find it clarified in the legislative history. 
That's what it means. Isn't that's, that? that's not the purpose for which the Court of Appeals used the language in this case. It did not focus on language in the lump sum appropriation statute itself and then say that the legislative history helped to clarify the statutory text. The Court really used the legislative history as a substitute for the statutory text. The statutory text here simply authorizes the agency to expend the funds for purposes authorized by the, by the Snyder Act as with those functions transferred to the Indian Health Service. It's then necessary to look to the Snyder Act uh, or the Indian uh, Health um, uh, Indian um, Health Statute uh, to to look for any law to apply. And the the Snyder Act, for example, and the Court of Appeals again didn't find anything in the text of the of the Snyder Act or the Indian Health Care Improvement Act that would furnish law to apply in this case. The Snyder Act, as this court po- pointed out in Morton versus Ruiz, is deliberately comprehensive. It was enacted in response to the the time when points of order were raised against Indian appropriations because there was no authorizing statute. Well, I suppose those acts would, would uh, provide law to apply for some questions that might arise under them. Yes, if, if the claim were that the, that the Indian Health Service would... They were providing were, help for non-Indians. Exactly, but the, there, I don't think there can be any question here that the reallocation or redirection of the work that the Indian Health Service made in this case was authorized by the statute. It simply redirected the employees' work from a regional, regionally focused program to a national program uh, to assure a- available services for Indian children. There's, I think that's unquestionably within the broad language of the, of the Snyder well, Act. Well, to that extent, there's law to apply here. Right, uh, but, but... Whether whether you can go to a national program. No, I, th- I think not. Respondents have not contended that the... That, uh, the uh, Used, utilizing the employees, uh, what, what was going to be done here, essentially, let me just back up for a minute. The, uh, the employees uh, under this uh, Indian children's program in, or project in, in, uh, in the Southwest was really set up as a pilot project. It wasn't even integrated into the local Indian health uh, care delivery system. It was operated out of headquarters as a pilot project to really investigate what, what might be done in what uh, was thought to be perhaps an underutilized area. But, the, but the, the ultimate point was to develop data and approaches for a nationwide program. And so when, when the Indian Health Service redirected the activities of the employees, the thought was that rather than have these employees do monthly consultations, consultative visits with individual uh, children, it would be better f- to try to develop local responsibility for the Indian children from local programs and have these employees use their expertise to go to un- other Indian Health Service areas around the country to help them develop the local expertise. But I, I don't think there's, there can be any question, and I don't understand respondents to claim that the utilization of the employees for this nationwide effort is somehow beyond the, the scope of what the Snyder Act or the Indian Health Care Act would authorize. Well, do you think that the discretion provided under these acts is any greater than, for example, a discretion given to... Uh, was it the Department of Transportation in the State Farm case? Well, in, in, in State Farm... Um, to just provide motor vehicle standards that um, met the need for motor vehicle safety? Well, the, the, there, there were specific statutory requirements that had to be satisfied, and there was, there was law... It was I just I just wonder how you distinguish them. Well, in, in, the, in the State Farm case, there were, there were actually quite stringent requirements that the agency had to satisfy before it could promulgate a motor vehicle s- standard. There, was, there were certain criteria, certain levels of safety that had to be satisfied that gave a... 
that gave a, a, a court uh, law to apply. Here, the, again, the Snyder Act was intended to cover essentially every possible activity that the BIA and now the Indian Health Service might engage in so that there could be no question in the, of a point of order when funds were appropriated to cover those funds. And well, the, Mr. Needler, suppose you had a statute that, that authorizes an agency, uh, instructs an agency to pro, and this is an instruction to, to expend the funds as well, uh, to prohibit those activities that are harmful to the environment. And the legislative history, the committee reports of both houses, say we anticipate that this will include prohibition of, and then fill in something, uh, you know, dumping by, uh, by, by uh, chemical companies. Uh, you think that legislative history would not be uh, would not be taken into account by this court in 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 determining whether the agency had authority to uh, or or had to prohibit that dumping by chemical companies? I'm it might sure be no taken way. into it might be taken into account in, in construing the term harmful. I guess is the the statutory the operative word there. Well, and the operative word here is is uh, um, purposes uh, authorized by these other statutes. What purposes in particular? Well, here's one. Well, well, the, the Snyder Act, for example, broadly appropriates funds for the benefit, uh, directs the BIA to, to supervise the expenditure of funds uh, that Congress may from time to time appropriate for the benefit, care, and assistance of Indians throughout the United States for a variety of services, as relevant here, relief of distress and conservation of Indians. Now, again, if the claim here were this, is not, this money is not being spent for the uh, relief of distress or conservation of the health of Indians or for any of the other purposes in the Act, that would be law to apply. But our point is that in, in choosing among the conceitedly authorized purposes, there's no, there's no law to apply in the text or legislative history of the Snyder Act or the Indian Health Care Improvements Act that would help a court uh, to decide that question. Now, could, you, could you imagine a case in which the legislative history would contain an indication of congressionally ordered priorities so that the legislative history would somehow indicate that the first priority in the Snyder Act is for disabled children? Oh, I, I, I can imagine uh, that sort of legislative history, but I think in some respects that's very much like the American Hospital Association case this court had several terms back, where there, where there was legislative history about the, the expectations and the way the court thought the National Labor Relations Board... And, and, is, that, and is that law to apply if the agency ignores the funding obligation? Not, not, unless, funding priority? Not, not unless that legislative history is tied to something in statutory text that mandates that result. I think this is very much like the D.C. Circuit's decision in the UAW case uh, versus Donovan of, of some years back where the, the, the court pointed out that legislative history of, of expectations in the way that Congress expected that funds may be expended are simply expectations. They aren't legally binding requirements. That's not to say they don't furnish protections, because congressional oversight in the appropriations process is, is often a very useful one. And in fact, it's in many respects the most productive and, and appropriate one for the overseeing of broad legislative programs. Courts are not generally suited to determining, uh, uh, to second-guessing an agency's ordering oh, of so, priorities. So, so, so long as the spending is authorized by one of three uh, statutory mandates, there can be no review as to how the agency allocates the fundings among those three? Unless Congress has, unless Congress has provided further guidance 
about how the court is to order its priorities. It's instructive in this regard. can it provide that guidance in legislative history? I think not unless it's tied to specific statutory text. The expectations are ones that Congress might enforce, as it were, in oversight hearings in subsequent years, which is the traditional give and take between an agency and its, and its authorizing and appropriations committee. Well, let me pose this to you. Suppose the BIA established a, a health care program for Indians with displaced children, with displaced hips, and then it decided later to terminate that because it understood that Indian children with displaced hips would be served for their health needs by a state agency. And let's suppose that that assumption is factually incorrect. So they've cut off the services based on a, an incorrect factual assumption. Is there no law to apply? Is that unreviewable for abuse of discretion? It is, it is unreviewable, yes, because, uh, first of all, I think there are reasons, I think, why that's not apt to become, become a major problem. But let me explain why that's so. The availability of other services is simply one of the many criteria that, the, that in this case, the Indian Health Service might take into account in reallocating resources. It, it, it's also possible that there would be some, that there would be other uses of the funds that would simply, as as needed as the funds might seem for one service, uh, that might seem more useful for another service. It's important to recognize that the well, Indian Justice O'Connor can defend her own hypothetical if she wants to, I suppose. But uh, I, I'd like to have an answer to it. Suppose that this is the reason that state funding uh, duplicates this program, and that reason is wrong. If that reason is, is, if, is, is factually unsound, if factually that reason true. if that reason proves to be wrong, I think what what would happen is that would be brought to the brought to the attention of the Indian Health Service. Well, and my question is, is: Is there law to apply? Can there be judicial review and, and judicial correction of that of that agency decision? There's not. There's not law to because even if there's a factual error, that does not mean there's law to apply. There, the, the agent. The, this is. Our, our position is it here, arbitrary and unreasonable? Could it? Could it? You make out of a case that it's arbitrary and unreasonable. Well, it, there was it, there was clear evidence that the state program did not provide the, uh, the the care, and the and the agency just ignored clear evidence. Well, that that would be the sort of claim that would be made if it were arbitrary and capricious. But our position so, is that review would be precluded of that. When when review is precluded, uh, that that conclusion presumes that there will be occasions. There could be occasions when there would be mistakes of that of that and type. Review made. is precluded again because there's no law to apply. Be yes, because because it well, th the phrase "no law to apply" is a phrase that this court has developed for applying what is what is really different statutory language under the APA, which is whether the agency action is committed to agency discretion by law. That's the ultimate touchstone. And the and the sort of example that that you're describing, the conclusion would be that Congress. Uh, has committed the allocation of resources in a whole variety of circumstances to the to the discretion uh, of the Indian Health Service, in part from necessity, because if courts were going to get in the business of second-guessing every uh, decision of resource allocation, whether to uh, purchase equipment for one hospital and not another, whether to reassign a doctor from one health clinic to another, even whether a patient should get one particular type of care or another, and, and base that on whether there, was, whether there was perhaps a factual error or what could be claimed to be a factual error underlying the agency's decision, then the, the, uh, the 
Indian Health Service could be hamstrung in the, in, in the delivery of health services. Mr. Needler, suppose, uh, here's how it, it, it says, for expenses necessary to carry out the act of August 15, 1954, blah, blah, blah. That's how the appropriations read. Suppose the, the, the committee, both the appropriations committees in both houses, there's language in the report that says, uh, we anticipate that uh, some of this money will go to this particular schooling program. Uh, it is later contended that that schooling program is not an authorized program on which the appropriations can be expended. That question comes up in a lawsuit. You mean you, that that uh, committee uh, legislative history would not be used by the government to establish? No, I'm, I'm not saying that legislative history can't be used to construe a statutory term. My point is that well, that's what they're doing here. They're they're saying this shows the expenses necessary to carry out. They in this is one of the things to be carried out. But, but the, the respondent's argument in the Court of Appeals' decision here is not tied to any language in the Lump Sum Appropriation or the Snyder Act or the Indian Health Care Improvements Act that's being construed with the assistance of that language. In fact, the Court of Appeals, again, specifically said it's difficult to find any manageable standards within the, within the uh, Indian Health Care Improvement Act or the Snyder Act. There's no statutory text in either one that says this this uh, function might be preferred over the that. The text in the Appropriations Act, expenses necessary to carry out the Act of August 5, 1954. It's clear in the Appropriations Committee that one of the things they thought necessary was this program. Why is that statutory well, language? Well, expenses different? necessary is, is standard language in, in appropriation statute. And if, and if that language was thought to incorporate every representation that is, that is made to an appropriations committee, I th frankly, I think that would revolutionize the way in which, in which agencies and Congress itself and GAO have traditionally regarded the... Well, I know, and you, say, you say that in your brief. You say, well, it's just puffing. It's not unusual for congressional committee members to attempt to influence the expenditure of general appropriations by way of statements and committee reports, as though they don't do that in other contexts? How do you they identify they, the one from the other? They, again, I guess I'm repeating myself, but here the, 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 claim, is, the claim is not that, uh, that there is some, they have not pointed to language, respondents have not pointed to language in the Snyder Act or in the, in the Indian Health Care Improvement Act and says this is the provision that it violates. Uh, these, the, the national program is unquestionably authorized by both statutes. And the only question is, in choosing among authorized functions, whether courts have, uh, whether, whether uh, that matter is committed to agency discretion. And that's not... Another uh, basis for reversal? Yes, we do. The, uh, the second issue in the case concerns the Court of Appeals requirement that the Indian Health Service uh, resort to notice and comment rulemaking procedures uh, before it could implement the uh, decision to re redirect the uh, funds in this case. The Court of Appeals announced a rule uh, that notice and comment requirements are necessary any time the government comes. Before you get there, did the court below reject the proposition about uh, unreviewability? Yes, so it did. So we, we must address that here? Uh, yes. Uh, and I suppose log I, the, the court could choose to address the notice and comment first. The Court of Appeals did not go on and reach the merits of whether the decision was arbitrary and capricious. It simply held it was subject to review, but held that it wouldn't reach the merits because of the notice and comment point, which it viewed in the manner of a, of a threshold issue. To address the and comment yes. issue. Yes, that's correct. Um, and the, the Court of Appeals held that a notice and comment is required any time the government cuts back on congressionally created and funded benefits for Indians, even if the Indians have no entitlement 
uh, to those uh, benefits. Uh, there is, in our, in our view, no basis for that uh, new requirement. It, it uh, conflicts with Vermont Yankee, which bars courts from imposing additional procedural requirements on agencies that are not required by law. And significantly also, it fails to respect that the judgment of Congress uh, when Congress thought that input from Indians was necessary uh, in the formulation of Indian health programs. In, in the 1988 amendments uh, to the Indian health care program that we mention in footnote 36 of our brief, Congress specifically addressed this problem in the context of facilities, permanent facilities. And it said that whenever the Indian Health Service is contemplating constructing, renovating, or closing a facility, it must consult with the tribe concerned before it does that, and in fact, in the case of closing a facility, must notify Congress. Congre uh, significantly, Congress did not impose any such requirement of consultation with respect to services under the statutory provisions that we have here. Services Mr. as opposed Needler, to does the APA definition of rule include policy statements? Is it a is is the decision to terminate this project? Uh, possibly a rule. Right. That, that's the, that is the ground. That that's the rationale that the district court applied. The, mm -hmm. the court of appeals announced this broader rule that it thought came from this court's decision in Morton versus Ruiz, which we be, which we believe was it was first of all an overreading of Morton versus Ruiz and did not t take into account subsequent uh, mm -hmm. developments. So on that point, Vermont Yankee and also that the notion that an agency has to can only administer a program like this through legislative rules we think is inconsistent with Bell Aer Aerospace, which allows an agency some discretion. But on the APA point, on whether this constitutes a rule, mm -hmm. uh, we, th we think that it, that it clearly does not. The decision to reallocate these resources was a self-contained decision. It was, yes, it was communicated verbally, and yes, it had some future consequences. But, but that does uh, not but, convert but it's it into been, a rule. it's been interpreted broadly to cover statements issued by an agency to advise the public prospectively of the manner in which an agency proposes to exercise a discretionary power. But it, in, a way, in a way that has future legal consequences is what, is, is what really characterizes a rule. We don't believe that Congress, when it enacted the statutory definition of a rule, intended to depart fundamentally from the, from the core of what a rule is. A rule, another word for rule, is a regulation, something that has, that has binding effect or at least legal force to it. That, got, that, that guides in a, in, a, in a legal manner the future but exercise it's been, of it's been interpreted by uh, the Attorney General's commentary as including general statements of policy. It does include general statements of policy, but, poli but policy in a sense that the statement itself has an abiding future effect. In this case, the in, in this case, there really have was an effect. All right, there won't be a program. At no. All. Well, first, first of all, there is a program. All the all the, the the children in the in the in these service areas will continue to be serviced by the national program. It, it's just that the that all Indian children throughout the country will get the same services rather than the regional program. Uh, the, the children in this one region getting something different. But the, it has a practical consequence. We don't deny that. But in order to be a rule, the statement itself, the statement has to have a continuing future legal effect. And here, the decision to reallocate... about rules of agency organization, which are referred to in the APA? Well, uh, how, how, does, how does a reorganization of the agency uh, have a future legally binding effect on any outside individual? 
Well, it, is, it, would, it would assign in a formal way, I mean, formality has a lot to do with what's a rule. It would assign in a formal way where various statutory responsibilities are to be assigned uh, within the agency, which assistant secretary is responsible for which programs, so that one can look and see who, who has the authority to exercise legal power, statutory power delegated from the secretary, and where various programs will reside. And that has a lot to do with the, with the way in which uh, uh, governmental authority is exercised. But here, at bottom, what happened here was nothing more than, a, than the sort of directive that a superior may give to, a, to an employee saying, instead of doing this type of work, uh, uh, confining your work to a regional program, starting tomorrow, your job description is somewhat different. You're being assigned to new, uh, to new responsibilities. That decision was consummated at that time, that, and it was communicated verbally in a variety of ways, one of which is a memorandum to health service units uh, contained at page 80 of the joint appendix. But the, the fact that the statement was communicated, or the, the decision was communicated in a statement didn't mean that the statement itself had any future legal consequences. Does, does the conclusion that you draw or don't want us to draw depend on the context? For example, if we were dealing here with a, an agency action which was preceded by a whole body of, of uh, what everybody agrees would be rules about uh, how the agency ought to allocate its money and so on, uh, then perhaps your argument would have great force. You would say, well, this is just trivial. This is basically just a reassignment of people. But where there is not such a body of, of, of rules uh, in existence, uh, this has far greater significance, i.e., it, it, it determines whether there is going to be a certain kind of program or not. Is that kind of contextual contrast a, a legitimate thing to take into consideration? Well, it, it might be a relevant factor. I mean, the, the, the fact of the matter is it, it, it's difficult to come up with any one principle that will solve all places. But we do think that formality and continuing legal effect are, are, are really the two central hallmarks of what a rule is, both in ordinary meaning and the special sense in which, it, in which it's used. So even in the situation you're talking about where a decision might be made to, uh, to uh, uh, engage in a certain program, that doesn't convert it into a rule. I think that the court's decision in Overton Park is very instructive as a parallel to this case. There, the court specifically held that the uh, Department of Transportation's decision to fund a particular program out of its appropriated funds was not a rule. Uh, and and, and uh, this, this is, in our view, uh, directly parallel uh, to that. Mr. Needler, isn't there an exception anyway, even if it were a rule? Isn't there an exception for rules uh, to notice and comment rulemaking for rules relating to benefits? Uh, the, there, is, there is an exception. Uh, the, the Department of Health and Human Services, like most agencies, has agreed to follow I notice see. and comment procedures for that. Uh, there may be some question whether these direct services are, are benefits within the meaning of that exception or whether it mm -hmm. just means cash transfers. But in any event, we haven't relied on that exception here because it, it's, been, it's been waived. I'd like to reserve Mr. the balance. Mr. Needler, point. on a small point, there, the court below ordered publication. Yes. And is that question before us? In order for there to be publication, it would, the, the, the decision here would have to be a rule. So the, the, our argument that it's not a rule subsumes both the publication requirement and the notice and comment requirement. Very well, Mr. Needler. Uh, Mr. Jaspers, we'll hear from you. Is that a correct pronunciation of your name? Jaspers, thank you. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court, the lower courts were correct in requiring notice and comment in this case. And to understand why 
Uh, it's critical that you understand how the program was implemented in the first place and how it was operated. Uh, this program, the Indian Children's Program, was implemented in a direct response to the Indian Health Care Improvement Act, which was passed in 1976. That act was passed to provide supplemental uh, funding for Indian programs, supplemental to the Snyder Act. Uh, Title II of the Indian Health Care Improvement Act specifically authorizes funding for uh, known unmet Indian health needs and specifically authorizes funding for uh, therapeutic and residential treatment centers. Uh, it was in response to that language in this act that the agency implemented this Indian Children's Program. Did it engage in rulemaking when it instituted the program? It did not, Your Honor. Uh, initially, the agency envisioned a $3.5 million facility uh, that was never funded. Uh, they initially chose to center that facility near Albuquerque for a number of uh, reasons, primarily because uh, the large Indian population, uh, which then Director Emery Johnson described as uh, half of, roughly half of the Indian population uh, residing in the states of New Mexico and Arizona. Uh, the Bureau of Indian Affairs did not well, support... Roughly half of the Indian population residing in New Mexico and Arizona resided in the Albuquerque area? No, Your Honor, in those two states. Those were his words, his characterization of the po Indian population. Half the time. Indian population in the United States resides in Arizona and New Mexico? Those were his, his words, Your Honor. Uh, the Bureau of Indian Affairs did not support this center. Uh, one of the reasons was they did not feel that uh, an inpatient center like this would meet their mandate under a separate act uh, relating to special education to provide services in the least restrictive environment. Uh, so what happened was the Indian Children's Program was formulated anyway by the, the Indian Health Service by uh, going ahead and, and forming specialized teams. They felt that uh, the staff, the specialized staff that was needed to provide these services was going to be needed regardless of whether they had a brick-and-mortar facility. The team was, was formed in 1978. It was centered in Albuquerque, and it proceeded to go out into nearby Indian communities uh, to provide various services, primarily diagnostic and treatment services. To its credit, the Indian Health Service recognized that there was a critical need for diagnostic and treatment services. Uh, they realized that, that observers uh, felt that this situation was one comparable to the national situation 35 years before at the time of the Second World War. Uh, eventually, a memorandum of agreement was signed by the two agencies. They agreed to try out this uh, concept of working together to provide these services. Uh, and in 1979, the fall of 1979, the Bureau of Indian Affairs did join uh, this effort. Mr. Jaspers, you, you, you claim rulemaking was necessary to terminate the program. You say it, it, wasn't, it wasn't applied to begin the program either. I, I assume it would have been necessary to begin the program too, wouldn't it? Uh, our position, Your Honor, is that when, when the agency is implementing law like this, establishing services, that they should have 
uh, undergone notice and comment before, to, before establish to establish it. And if they had decided not to establish it, since the APA defines agency action to include agency inaction, if they had not established the program, they would have also have to had rulemaking in order not to establish the program, wouldn't they? Uh, I don't believe so if they were not. Well, read the APA. Agency action includes inaction. Any decision not to have the program would require rulemaking, just as a decision to have it would require rulemaking, and as you say, a decision to terminate it would require rulemaking. We certainly are going to have a lot of rulemaking out there. Uh, I, I can't concede that uh, inaction requires rulemaking. They're not, they're not taking anything, uh, they're not taking any action prospectively prospectively there that's of a generalized nature uh, that implements a policy. The decision not to spend money on this program in the first place is a decision that has future effect, as you say. It's going to deprive these people of the money. And, and the decision not to have it under the APA is just as much a decision as the decision to have it. So you would need, you would need rulemaking endlessly for all programs you begin, for all programs you end, and for all programs you don't begin. I, you know, I don't know where the end is. Well, we, we, we believe very strongly in this case that where the agency did, in fact, uh, undertake this operation and, and did so in response to this statute, uh, as well as uh, its federal trust responsibility to Indian people, uh, that when they, over time, uh, operated this program, provided these kind of services, established eligibility rules that set out what services were to be, to be provided and, and who was to receive them, that when they went ahead and disestablished that program, that, that the agency, the agency, agency, the Indian Health Service. This was a joint effort, but only the Indian Health Service uh, made this particular decision. In fact, the Bureau of Indian Affairs was, did not even receive notice until they receive the, the actual termination letter uh, that the agency, the Indian Health Service, uh, sent out. Um, what happened during this time is that uh, the, the eligibility criteria that were uh, adopted by the agency were applied, and basically those eligibility criteria were such that uh, only children in certain areas of the Southwest were to receive those services, and only children who were within certain, a certain age range, birth to age 21, and who were handicapped uh, were to receive these services. Uh, and so these teams traveled out into the Indian communities, into reservation areas, areas that were remote, that were, were rural, that were uh, isolated and oftentimes small, and provided these diagnostic and treatment services. What's also important to understand is that throughout the operation of this program, every year in uh, testimony to the congressional committees regarding appropriations, the agency continuously uh, told the agency this is a critical program for these children, uh, it's a successful program, we are providing these specific diagnostic and treatment services to them. Uh, certain children are eligible for these services, and we want continued funding for this program. Uh, and, and, and Congress appears to have responded favorably to these requests, 
they receive the information in a favorable light, uh, and, and we think there was uh, this showed intent by the Congress through its Appropriations Committee to continue this program in the form that the agency then did. In October 1984, uh, officials in the Rockville, Maryland, headquarters east portion of the Indian Health Service, began urging that this program be changed, that the, the form uh, that it was in at that point, which was a regional program, be changed to a national uh, scope program that would provide consulting and training. Sometime in 1985, the, the record is not clear as to exactly when this decision was made, but sometime in 1985, uh, the decision was made to eliminate the Indian Children's Program as a direct service program. This termination decision was announced in a letter in, a, in August of 1985. This termination letter, single letter, is the only explanation that the agency provided uh, or that gives us any uh, information as to what it was doing and why it was doing this. Uh, one of our arguments here in, in terms of the arbitrary and capricious uh, argument is that a single letter that simply tells what they were doing without uh, any explanation is not, not sufficient to provide us with uh, a reasoned explanation. What about all the other people on whom money was not being spent? Were they also entitled to an explanation of why money was not being spent on them? I mean, you're not the only people there. You're, you're, you're joining the vast majority of the citizens on whom this money is not being spent. What, what, what is the reason for your special entitlement to a notice and comment uh, rulemaking on this point? We believe that notice and comment uh, is afforded first because this was a rule, legislative rule under the APAs. But second, sec second you're, there are four reasons why we... The first one applies to everybody else. I'm trying to figure out why everybody else isn't entitled to it. What, what's the, what are the other three? Okay, the others, Your Honor, are that there is an... Under the Indian Trust responsibility, there is a specific duty to deal fairly. We think if that... That language, which was stated by this court in Morton versus Ruiz, is to mean anything, is not simply uh, an empty phrase that this court used, that that at least means fairness to these children. And fairness here in this context uh, means some kind of procedural protection. Well, Given Mr. Jespers, in the uh, case, I forget what the name was, I think Cherokee, we just said two or three, we said the concept of the Indian trust responsibility is basically a responsibility for land, not any general duty of uh, heightened fair dealing with Indians. There is clearly a specific fiduciary duty when, when it comes to land, Your Honor. Uh, however, this, this court, and, and the government doesn't dispute this, that there is a general uh, overriding trust responsibility that the government has. Uh, what they're, that, what they're, that, should, that should make the standards of review under the uh, Administrative Procedure Act different when a Indians are parties plaintiff than when other people are parties plaintiff? Not, not I'm not arguing that point under the APA. The, APA it, the notice and comment here in this case can stand regardless of whether it involved Indian people or not with this type of action. What I'm arguing here is a second basis for 
affirming the notice and comment is that the overriding trust response Indians are entitled to notice and comment even though non-Indians in precisely the same situation would not be? Is that what you're arguing? No. I'm arguing that in this particular context, the APA uh, would afford them notice and comment regardless of whether they were Indian people. But in addition to that, this duty to deal fairly must mean something uh, but I, I think you're, you're simply reading that much too broadly from our cases. I don't think our cases said there is any general duty to deal in a specially fair way with Indians as opposed to other citizens. Unless you're talking about the interpretation of a treaty or the uh, duty to deal with trust lands. Let me address your question by uh, referring to Morton versus Ruiz. In that case, you also had Indian people. Uh, in that case, there were, it was a Snyder Act program, similar to this one. It wasn't specifically required by statute. It was funded under lump sum. There weren't specific eligibility rules required by the, uh, by the statute. In that case, this court said that the, because there is an overriding duty of trust under this general trust responsibility, that the continued expectation, a legitimate expectation of those uh, general assistance recipients in that case could not be extinguished uh, unless there was notice and comment. Well, I, I suggest that you take a look at our opinion in Cherokee Nation, where we say the trust responsibility is implicated only where the Indian property is at stake. Mr. Jaspers, I thought that the APA itself exempted from notice and comment, even if you assume that the letter in, uh, at issue was a rule, and I'm not sure it was, but if you assume that, it exempts general statements of policy from any notice and comment requirement. And at best, you'd consider the letter just a statement of policy, wouldn't you? Well, we, we, would, uh, we would submit that even if it was a, a general statement of policy, that, that presumes it was at least a rule in the first place, and so that it comes within the purview of the Administrative Procedure Act. And a statement of general policy must at least be published in the Federal Register. And this is but one of no the... no notice and comment required. That's correct, Your Honor. But it would at least have to be uh, published in the Federal Register, which would give publication notice. And that is one of the uh, independent grounds on which the district court did rule in favor of the children here under the APA. And so the, the point is it doesn't really make any difference for the children whether or not this was a legislative rule requiring notice and comment under Section 553 or whether it was a statement of general policy requiring federal uh, register publication under Section 552. Either way, we win. The government's argument is that this is an action that, that's not a rule at all and so doesn't you, come within you, the APA. You don't win if it isn't a rule. That's correct. It must, must be a rule. And, and, and our argument here is that this was clearly uh, prospective in nature. It was generalized in nature. It applied to uh, all of these children. Uh, and, it, and it prescribed policy. This was a change that the agency made from following one course of action to a very different course of action. That change was a change in terms of how it, how it was deciding uh, to implement 
its reading of the Indian Health Care Improvement Act, this specific yeah. therapeutic and, and treatment uh, centers provision in the act. And so when they make a change in their reading of the law and change their whole program as a result of that, that's at least a statement of general, general policy, and it's, and it's certainly a rule. Mr. Jaspers, if, if I may turn to the uh, law to apply uh, uh, aspect of this for a moment. Some agencies have as their function dispersing money as these agencies have as a large part of theirs or dispersing uh, benefits. Other agencies are enforcement agencies principally and don't give out much money. Uh, in a case called Heckler versus Cheney, we decided that there was no law to apply, no basis for a uh, cause of action uh, against an agency asserting that it had to uh, exert its enforcement priorities in this manner rather than in another manner. We said there are a lot of different manners it can use. It's up to the agency to decide where to devote its limited enforcement resources. Now, why doesn't that principle carry over very well to, uh, to an agency that's in the disbursement of benefits business to the same extent there really is no law to apply? Well, we, we would argue that uh, the Heckler versus Cheney type of non-enforcement decision uh, was really one that, that, that was not primarily a resource-type allocation decision, uh, but a decision whether to take a specific type of action uh, that it could under the statute. Uh, this, well, only this because the agency has limited enforcement resources, just as these agencies have limited uh, distribution resources. It has to put it one place or another place, and it decided to do it in places that the plaintiffs didn't like. Same thing's happening here. Well, I think, I think in this, this kind of a situation, this Court has, has, uh, has answered that by saying that when there are limited, limited funds uh, and, and you're going to change a program from what it was doing before and when you're going to extinguish an expectation that the services that were there before, uh, that, that you have to at least give the, the people the kind of notice so that they know what's happening. Uh, and, and that's the notice and comment requirement that, that comes in under Morton versus uh, Ruiz, that even if there are insufficient funds and, and, there, and the agency has to do this reallocation, it has to be done in such a way that's fair to the children. And it's not fair to the children, given this overriding trust responsibility to deal fairly with them, if, if the agency simply abruptly stops the services here. Uh, I, I would add that it's it seems illogical and, and totally incomprehensible that when the agency has a specific mandate under the Snyder Act, uh, a mandatory requirement that it, it act with respect to Indians to conserve health, that they not at least when they're, when they're abruptly terminating these services to give them notice. Notice just as a matter of general uh, common sense would have been proper here and, and something that would have assisted them uh, in maintaining their health. It, it, it might be similar when we get uh, those, those of us here who are covered by private health insurance. We would be, feel very uh, unfairly treated if, if the coverer simply dropped uh, the, ins the, the coverage that we have without telling us or changed a provision in the coverage without telling us. If the children had known ahead of time, if they had been given notice, 
they could have at least have attempted to locate and find those alternative services that the government says was readily available to make some sort of a transition. Without that transition, they fell into, uh, fell between the cracks. There was a gap of time. Uh, and the record is very clear on that point that loss of services to these type of children uh, harms them. The, the type of treatment services that they need, you cannot accumulate. Uh, and so loss of services over even a couple of months was detrimental to their health. Uh, what the government is really asking this court to do here uh, in its argument that there is no law to apply is to, is to write a blank check. We have relied on, in this case, all of the Indian health care law that there is. If there is no uh, law to apply here under the Snyder Act and the Indian Health Care Improvement Act uh, and the Indian Health Service Manual and so on, uh, no Indian people will ever be able to uh, obtain judicial review. It will be completely foreclosed. Uh, we don't could, I, could I ask you, uh, suppose we disagree with you, uh, uh, suppose, we, uh, suppose we say that, uh, that uh, there is no need for notice or comment. Uh, is the case over? No, Your Honor, the case is not over. Uh, the, the both lower but courts. Let's, let's assume we agree with you that uh, that uh, there is uh, that that is not committed to agency discretion, but that uh, there's no need uh, when the when the agency did what it did for uh, to give notice or comment. If there's no no uh, notice and comment requirement and and it's this is not totally a matter of agency discretion, the case is not over and it would re. Uh, would require remand to the, the district to, court. To decide whether it was arbitrary and capricious? Or yes, what? Your Honor. Yes. Uh, and in, with respect to the arbitrary and capricious argument. Because uh, the court didn't reach that, did it? No, it did not. It, it found that, that all that was necessary here, because there were procedural violations, that it wasn't about to go uh, further and, and make a merits review. On the other hand, if we, if we, if we say that it's committed to agency discretion, uh, there is no need to reach the uh, notice and comment issue, is there? Uh, we, we think if, if, it's, if it's committed to agency discretion, that, 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 that all that goes to is, is the review on the merits itself, whether it was arbitrary and capricious or contrary to law. The procedural violations claims are still there, and there is separate law to apply to those. Uh, and, and that separate law is, of course, uh, Section 552 and Section 553, so that you would have to rule uh, both that there is no, uh, there was no rule here, so that there was neither 552 federal publication or notice and comment under 553, and you would have to rule that this is totally and completely discretionary, that there is simply no law of any kind to apply here to this action. Indeed, I, I suppose you would argue that if there is no law to apply, there is all the more need for the notice and comment procedures that the law requires, because uh, uh, the agency having a free hand and not being controllable by the courts, there's all the more reason for insisting that it listen to the public as the law requires it to do. Right? Yes, Your Honor. It's, it's crucial that, that the courts be available to small uh, disenfranchised Minorities such as that is, if, the, if it's a rule. 
we have to we would have to agree that it's a rule before there's notice and comment. Right, right. It must be a rule to get Federal Register publication, and it must be a rule to get. Uh, well, do we have to? Uh, uh, well, go ahead, Mr. Jaspers. Uh, just a couple of questions. Um, this involves a termination. But let's uh, assume that the agency simply reduced the number of employees. Would that be a rule? It, it would depend on the reason that they reduced the employees. Let's say we just they decided to deploy them to Phoenix. That that would not be a rule. There's no prescription of law in that kind of a situation. However, if they were to decide to uh, re redeploy the the staff to meet a specific statutory requirement to meet meet the mandate of their law in some specific way, then they would be implementing the statute, and that would be prescription of law. That well, let me understand that. So, <clears throat> if you reduce the staff by 50 percent, that's not a rule. It, again, it, it depends on whether you're doing that simply as a matter of uh, agency management, or whether you're doing that because the law requires. Let's say we want to use these, this 50 percent to develop a national program. In that case, that's that 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 would be prescription of your law. You're implementing the statute there, uh, and and that would be a rule that requires. Uh, that that would be a rule in that instance. We, we believe that judicial review is appropriate in this case, uh, both because this action was arbitrary and capricious. The program changed uh, its course of conduct. It changed its policy without any explanation. Again, all we have is a single letter that says what they were going to do, but did not provide any explanation. Uh, they also uh, made this decision without justifying, making an unjustified factual assumption that there would be readily available alternative services. Uh, the, the children have made a clear showing, and in fact the district court found that um, the children's allegations in this regard were essentially unrebutted. And, and the agency must, in order to uh, make this decision in a manner that is not arbitrary and capricious, do so in a way that's adequately informed that considers all the relevant factors and provides a reasoned explanation. Uh, and finally, we are asserting, of course, that this action was directly contrary uh, to the law, particularly the Snyder Act. This goes directly contrary to its requirement that the agency take actions which conserve health, and also the uh, Indian Health Care Improvement Act requirement that they maintain and improve, and try to achieve the highest possible uh, health status uh, for these children. Uh, I'd like to close, and, and, and I think particularly with respect to law, uh, law to apply, it's, it's perhaps fitting to remember the words of uh, the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus says, Suffer the little children to come unto me. I'd ask that you do no less. Don't close the courthouse doors on these kids. Uh, please at least afford them judicial review. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Jaspers. Uh, Mr. Needler, you have four minutes remaining. A couple points I wanted to make on each of the issues. 
First, on the notice and comment issue, um, on the question of, of individualized notice, uh, which Council for Respondents mentioned, it's important to bear in mind that the Indian Health Service was not the primary provider of care in these circumstances. It was always a backup or secondary consultative role that IHS personnel were performing. The children involved had primary caregivers, and the Indian Health Service did give individualized notice to the primary caregivers and held community meetings to assist them in, in developing alternative resources, which was the sort of approach appropriate uh, to the circumstances. Uh, in addition, notice and comment is not well suited to uh, obtaining the input of the Indian people in a circumstance such as this. But neither Congress nor the Indian Health Service has been indifferent to the need to get input. But they've chosen a different way, which is, cons which is a system of consultation with the tribes concerned. I've mentioned the, uh, the consultation with tribes that Congress required for facility alterations in the 1988 amendments, which are in 25 U.S.C. 1631. But in addition, the amicus brief of six tribes in this case cites several documents which describe the Indian Health Service's broader system of consultation through a national health board, through health boards at the local level for the various clinics, and consultations with the tribes concerned about the delivery of, of services uh, on their reservations. That is the form of consultation and in input that is appropriate to the circumstances. It's also appropriate to the Indian Health Service's mission, which is one from a public health perspective, not one of individual entitlement to, uh, to, to medical services, but a public health service which requires them to look at the big picture and mortality rates and, and where, where services are needed in the main. On the question of what's committed to agency, uh, or, uh, that this is committed Mr. to agency. Peter, can I ask you one, one yes. very brief question? Uh, I understand if this is not a rule under your view. Is it agency action? Yes, I think it's agency action. Uh, but it's a self-contained decision with no lasting consequences in itself. On the question of committed to... You don't agree that all agency action is divided into rules and orders, that there's some... We do not. That there's a large Third category, category that we don't know what they are. Informal action, yes. I think that's necessarily so, uh, or, or agencies would be hamstrung. On the question of committed to agency discretion, it's, I, I want to emphasize again several points. One, the statements in the committee reports have long been on appropriations acts, have long been understood by the GAO, I think by Congress itself and by executive agencies, not to be intended to create binding legal obligations. Uh, and it, it, to change that understanding of those sorts of exchanges in the appropriations process would, in GAO's view and, and the executive branch's view, change that process radically. Also, on the question of what is, when something is committed to agency discretion by law, it's important to bear in mind that whether there's law to apply is just one way of getting at that question. There are other factors in, that this Court has recognized, including whether the issue is one that's traditionally been regarded as committed to agency discretion, which the allocation of appropriated funds is and also whether there would be unduly disruptive consequences of allowing judicial review. And for the reasons I've described, there clearly would be here because it would subject uh, numerous myriad uh, decisions of the Indian Health Service and the administration of this vast program to the potential for judicial review on basis of facts or disagreement about the ordering of priorities, which brings me to the last point on that, and that is directly tied to Heckler versus Cheney, as Justice Scalia mentioned, that this is a case in... Uh, going to the core of the allocation of scarce agency resources among the various demands on the agency's time and energy. And that is, again, necessarily something committed to agency discretion. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Needler. The case is submitted.